This Quadcast podcast is brought to you by the book Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree. For too long, people of faith have focused more on pointing out where other religions get it wrong. But what if we decided to focus more on all the ways those other religions get it right? This path might end up leading us into deeper understanding, connection, friendship, and peace. This was the idea behind the book that Choir Publishing and Pathios decided to assemble, gathering voices from different religious backgrounds who have learned to listen to those outside their own faith traditions. We hope that the wisdom they share with us here allows you to become more open to the truth and beauty to be found outside your own faith community. Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree, from Choir Publishing and Pathios, available now on Amazon. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Face, the questions or even the answers are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host, Stuart Deloney. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another round of Snarky Faith. I'm your host, Stuart Deloney, and Snarky Faith is radio for the spiritually disenfranchised. If you've had enough of the insanity in Christianity, well, you've come to the right place. Here at Snarky Faith, we're all about finding a sane faith grounded in reality and working to make the world a better place in tangible ways. We're here to call out religious BS, look for better ways forward, and help you realize that you're not crazy. This religious stuff is completely nuts. You can handle your conversations about faith with copious amounts of sarcasm and also a bit of this. Then welcome home. We're glad you're here. This broadcast and all past podcasts can be found at snarkyfaith.com and wherever else you listen to podcasts. We're here. We're there. We're everywhere. Just look for Snarky Faith. Well, hasn't this been an incredibly depressing and heavy week? Not just for me, not just for you, but for the entire world watching the terror attacks in Israel and then watching how everyone's reacting and how it's unfolding. It's, 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 it's horrific. It's, it's disheartening. And as we start this show, I, I just felt like, not that my voice necessarily matters <laughs> weighing in on things like this, but uh, I spent days thinking about what to, what to talk about and kind of how to let some of this out and what was percolating in my mind. And I just kind of come back, I come back to this. That we have to remember that, that Hamas's attack on Israeli civilians, including the vulnerable, these are inexcusable acts of war that do demand accountability. And simply put, this is the worst of humanity on display right now. But we also have to remember that Israel and Palestine both deserve peace and security. And we need to remember not to conflate Hamas with all Palestinians, which oftentimes happens in political discourse, as I've seen online and otherwise. Palestinians have been enduring an occupation and blockade for decades. And after all these attacks, seeing the gears of war moving forward and what is happening next, it's equally disheartening. Is Israel is gearing up for a ground invasion in Gaza. It's vital for us to remember that compassion for Israelis shouldn't translate into a free pass for excesses and retaliation. Just as we condemn Hamas, we must also spotlight Israel's abuses in Gaza. Now, I'm not trying to say this is a both sides thing, but I am saying that we all know that violence begets violence, and it doesn't lead to peace. And how do we untangle this horrific mess? I, I wish I knew. All I can say is that it's, it's heart-wrenching, it's gut-punching, and it's just profoundly unsettling as, as you're just seeing the horrors happen in real time on the news. 
No, I'm I'm not sure of anything, especially how all of this is going to turn out. But I do know in times like these, contemplation and nuance and grace are the things that are needed. That these are all just people that are dying. And this is a situation that's been going on for a long time. And I guess what breaks my heart after seeing the horrors of terror attacks is also the ramping up for more violence. And I wish I had answers for this kind of a thing, but I don't. I don't. I don't. The whole thing is just, it's just horrible. And it just leaves us in a profound place mourning. And I feel like that's where I've been for like the past week, just, just mourning this deep within my soul. But one thing that stuck out to me through all of this were the terrible and thoughtless and insensitive takes that a lot of folks are having. Now, you are listening to a show called Snarky Faith. And one thing, you know, I would hope in these times, um, especially in these times of tragedy, that when we hear from Christian leadership on these issues, that we would get things like contemplation, nuance, and grace. But again, you're listening to a show called Snarky Faith. <laughs> and if you thought you were going to hear me giving great examples of that, you've come to the wrong place. So let's go ahead and step into this. Uh, because one thing I know that I can also do at the same time when I mourn, I can also get pissed off. And let's hop into these bad, bad, bad takes from Christian leadership in the face of the attacks on Israel. And first up, we've got Pastor Greg Laurie. Greg Laurie is trying to do the public thing that evangelists do, you know, pray publicly, make sure everybody knows how we're, yeah, doing that. And, and, and this is one of those examples, and this is what gets me about his kind of brand of evangelism. It dehumanizes people. And you're like, Stuart, how could that happen? This is a prayer call. Well, 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 just let me let you listen to the end of this prayer call and kind of see, kind of see where Greg totally misses the fucking point. Scripture tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We should do that together. And I pray for a great spiritual awakening that will sweep the Holy Land that many of our Jewish friends will turn to God and his son, Jesus Christ. I stand by Israel and the Jewish people. Jesus Christ. Leave it to someone. Leave it to someone, especially an evangelical. Leave it to them to make this all about winning souls for Jesus. We stand with them. This is a horrible situation. But you know... Silver linings. <laughs> yes, this is disgusting, and this is completely missing the point. Can we pray for Israel? Sure. Can we pray for the people in Palestine and all those that are suffering? Absolutely. Can we make this about ourselves? Eh. I think you know the answer, and it's only going downhill from here. Just a warning here. So next up in the lifestyles of the tactless grifter pastors, we've got someone that we all know here. He's not really known for decorum or, or nuanced takes on anything scriptural, but that's never stopped him before. We've got Greg Locke. Greg Locke's take on what's happening over in Israel. Now, you would hope if you're going to go to church on a Sunday, your pastor is going to do something that kind of, ooh, let's remind us of where we're at. Let's, let's give space to mourn the tragedies of what's happened. Let's look towards prayer and hope for a peaceful new tomorrow. 
Yeah, but this is Greg Locke, so... Israel should make the Gaza Strip a parking lot by this time next week. Destroy the whole thing. And anybody that's going to support this Hamas nonsense. Well, I mean, this is a, what we would expect from Greg Locke. Disgusting, moronic, but I will give points to whoever's playing that piano. Kind of makes one wonder, like, in their, you know, pianist hymnal books, is there something towards the back you can flip to to where my pastor's gonna say something batshit crazy? But we need to accompany it. Wait, is this how it works? Hi, y'all. We all know this is the month of October, which is, you know, Satan's birthday. So what I want to tell you is that pumpkins are evil. They're evil because they attract demons and, and, even if you want to smash them, Billy Corgan's mad as a rat in a cage and you ain't gonna stop it. You ain't gonna stop it. So here's what I'm telling you. If you want to keep the demons out of your body this October, right, you gotta make sure eat no candy, eat no candy, and cover all of your orifices. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, that was beautiful. Or not really. That was awful and stupid. But uh, is it orifices or orifices? I'm not really sure about that. But what I want to do here, as we're going through bad pastor takes during tragedy, I've got one that's a little different, boys and girls. This one kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of feels like it's in a category of its own. This is what we would call the award for prophesying before tragedy. Oh my gosh, right? That's what we want. We want our prophets to, to go into the space with the Lord and the Lord to tell us of everything that's going to happen. Because I'm guessing that's what prophets do, right? It's like, yeah, I need to know God because my people got to hear. And God's like, all right, I got what you want. How much you got, baby? Because I'm assuming there's some sort of a dollar amount that gets switched between hands because the prophets are always asking for cash. So, yeah. So this one, this one, this one is one of the OG grifters, Benny Hinn. Oh, yes, that Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn is speaking two weeks before the attacks on Israel. So let's go ahead and kind of dip into, I mean, this dude, he's a master prophet, right? He's a master prophet, Bader. I don't know how that works, but yes, he is sleazy, he is greasy, and he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. This, this, this is beautiful because oftentimes we don't always have receipts quite like this. So, Benny, spin that holy shit that only you can spin, baby. And we were all wondering, like, what is the next major event in the world? We all knew revival. It's going to be a revival because they were all revivals in some way. This is going to be a global revival because now Israel is making peace with its neighbor. So let's do some math here for Benny Hinn. Oh, what? Peace? Amazing peace is coming? As he says two weeks before this happens. <laughs> Way to go, prophet. Way to go. But it doesn't stop there. He keeps on going. And I'm here to tell you, peace will come between the Palestinians and the Israelis. How? Only God knows. But it's going to have to happen for Honestly, folks like him are simply probably just the Christian Hamas. They are absolutely terrorists and grifters of the faith. Because none of this has to do with Jesus, and they don't care. Right? They just take, they just take, they just take, and they just leave bullshit in their wake. Because that's what they do. So I want to thank you for letting me process in this space of being able to call out horrible people dealing with a horrible situation horribly. But you know what we need now? You know what we need? We need to have a better conversation. You know, I mentioned earlier contemplation, nuance, grace. 
Yeah, yeah. So today we are going to be talking with Dylan Neighbor Cruz and his new book, Theological Musings. And I think this is something that is going to fit very well within the ethos of what's happening now. Well, today I am talking with Dylan Neighbor Cruz. Dylan is a writer, theologian, and permaculture enthusiast living in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. In addition to his multiple permaculture certifications, Dylan also holds a bachelor's in history uh, from Millersville University and a master's degree in religion from Lancaster Theological Seminary. He's also the author of the books Gold Golden, Applying a Universal Religious Teaching and Ethics of Permaculture to Create Sustainable, Just Happier World, and his new one, which we will be talking about today, Theological Musings, which is a collection of essays covering a ton of different topics, um, such as political, social, and environmental concerns, along with many different glimpses into his personal life, his experiences, and trauma. And that book is available on Amazon now. And I will just go ahead and say this, Dylan, uh, the, this book, these essays, I felt were very, very timely, uh, especially in, in an age where it feels like faith has been lost to politics and become mm -hmm. so misguided. So I'll just say I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And I, I think that doing theology in our cultural moment means that we have to be hitting the, the timely high notes, mm -hmm. the things that are really affecting people, uh, not only within our borders, but beyond them. Sure. So now, now it, you are, you would refer to yourself as a public theologian. So for our listeners, what the heck is a public theologian? Right. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good question. To me, a public theologian is somebody who's going to take theology, say, from out of the classroom, like in a seminary or Bible college, or out of the pulpit, and kind of look at what's happening in the world and go, okay, this needs a theological lens. We need to take theology out of the ivory tower and go to the streets. So it's kind of a liberation theology uh, ethos, I would say. I'm, I was very influenced by the work of Dr. King. Uh, when I first got my history degree, I found copies of his uh, landmark speeches edited by, um, oh, I I always forget, but look it up. The landmark speeches of Dr. Martin Luther King on audio. So I, you know, you hear the, the depth and breadth of his work and you go, okay, yeah, that's public theology right there. Mm -hmm. That's meeting a cultural moment with theological truth bombs. And I, as a white heterosexual American feel like I need to be doing that kind of work because so many people that look a lot like you and me are getting it radically wrong in terms mm -hmm. of loving neighbors or, or just being decent human beings. Mm -hmm. And I think that theology answers that uh, in a way that maybe some, some other disciplines don't necessarily do. Mm -hmm. now, now, can you give us a little bit of uh, a background into your spiritual journey what does that kind of looked like? Sure. I'll try to give you the Reader's Digest condensed <laughs> version because uh, I can get a little long-winded on this stuff. I grew up fundamentalist. I had grandparents that were Church of Christ. And then when we moved from Missouri to Texas, I joined the First Baptist Church of Blue Ridge uh, in Blue Ridge, Texas, which is the Southern Baptist Church. For those who don't know, the Southern Baptist Church and the Church of Christ are two of the whitest and most conservative denominations in the United States. And so I lived and I grew up in the 80s, satanic panic, rapture anxiety, mm -hmm. Mike Warnke telling people to go stomp on their lawns, uh, all of that kind of stuff. And in about 2003, I had started my undergraduate history degree and I had also started to pay more attention to the words in red in the, in the Gospels. And I was living on a military base because I had been in the Marines. And after I got out of the Marines, my then wife joined the Army and became a chaplain. So we were going to church services on a military base with predictable results. People were praying that we would go to war and win 
but they were never praying about not going to war to kill brown people. Mm. And so I finally, I couldn't reconcile the words of Christ in the Beatitudes, particularly Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, with what I was seeing and hearing from the military industrial complex of which I was a part. And I had, I, you know, I'm a disabled veteran uh, from the Marine Corps. And, you know, then at that time I was a military spouse. So I've seen both sides of it. And I didn't know anything about church history at the time. I just, I just literally looked at the gospels and was like, this, these things are not the same. And I, I, I literally walked out of a service uh, one day or before service, I was putting some materials together for a Sunday school class for little kids. And a guy came in and said, we're going to war, baby. And I was just like, nope. And I just left. Mm. And my, my wife was standing there as the chaplain and she just saw me without a word walk out. And she was like, what was that all about? And I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this anymore. So I kind of spiritually wandered in the wilderness until about 2015. Didn't really know what I was doing with myself. Because you get taught in that world that that's the only way to be a Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there are no other viable ways, which is absolute nonsense. Now, I know that now. And in 2015, I decided kind of suddenly to to maybe explore seminary after kind of an existential crisis. You know, we, a lot of people have that in their, in their forties. And I was in my forties and I was kind of having this like, Oh shit moment. Like, what do I do? I'm 40 something. And I don't know what I'm doing with my life. And then the next thing you know, I ended up at the admissions office at Lancaster theological seminary and was like, I don't know, maybe I could go here, but here's all the reasons why I should not be allowed to attend your fine institution. <laughs> and the director of vocations just looked at me and she's like, yeah, no, you sound like you'd be a really good fit here. Where do you go to church? And I was like, yeah, um, about that. I haven't been to church since 2003 on purpose, like, because I wanted to go. And she said, well, maybe try this church down the street called Wisdom's Table. And I said, okay, I'll, you know, I'll think about it. And I went and I wrote about this. One of the essays is about my first time at that church. And the pastor remembered my name after a few weeks of me attending one time. And that really, that really stuck with me. So I thought, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a go. I'll, I'll, I'll attend when I feel like it. I wasn't going to go Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night like I did with my Church of Christ grandparents, but I would go occasionally. And after a while, it just started to feel like that's what I was being led to. Mm. And I ended up uh, becoming a member. It's a United Church of Christ congregation. And I took communion uh, for the first time in over a decade. And, it, and I had a profoundly moving experience uh, with that um eucharistic meal uh where i felt grace for the first time ever taking communion in the church of christ it's weekly communion with one loaf and one cup because that's what the bible says now it doesn't matter if you're in an upper room or not because all the church of christ churches are on a single floor but the one cup one loaf is distinctly important to these folks mm. but it's closed communion mm -hmm. Like if I were to go to my grandmother's church right now, they wouldn't let me take communion. Mm. Whereas in the United Church of Christ church that I was part of, they didn't care if you had any belief in God or whatever. They were just like, if you're a little bit hungry, come. And I found a lot of grace in that. Mm. And I actually went and got grace, period, and chorus tattooed on my wrist. And you can see that on the book cover. And it was because when I looked down to receive the communion, I wanted to see what I was getting. Mm. And that's grace. And charis is grace in Koine Greek for those who don't know. So that's that's kind of a, a nutshell version of, of where I started and kind of where I ended up at, at seminary. And, and I still struggle uh, with whether or not church is for me uh the pandemic really didn't help with that at all um but i'm feeling this tug to to reinvigorate that 
that practice again uh, in a in a more progressive in a con- continually in a progressive uh, church kind of sense. Mm-hmm. Now, no, wait, I, I don't want to let this slide by. You, you said that. So that is your arm. That's on the book cover. Yeah, that's that's me holding uh, communion bread dipped in wine. Oh, I didn't realize that was actually you. So wait, th- how does that feel now that you're you're like a book cover model? You've got to the. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, they're lucky that it's just my hands. That's. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I had I I had that idea for the cover, um, just because I I a it's called collected essays of a tattooed theologian. So you know, those are those are a couple of the of the more biblically centric tattoos that I have. I have another one that's Isaiah 4031 from my fundamentalist days. Uh, that's a big favorite for the, for the Baptist and whatnot. Um, yeah, that, that was, that was fun. We, we had a lot of fun shooting those and, uh, trying to make it look like something that, uh, that would work for cover and whoever designed the cover did a really great job. Awesome. Now, now your book, your book is a collection of essays, and it covers oh my goodness, so many different topics to like trauma, politics, healthcare, gun control, uh, systemic racism, LGBTQIA rights, Christian nationalism, the pandemic. It, it covers a ton of topics. So, what I want to do in, in our conversation is give the readers a little bit of a taste of, sure. of some of this, and so I'll going to kind of pick through some ideas that I was that I was enjoying as I was going through the book. Um, okay. I, I want you to unpack this because I, I enjoyed this. Uh, this is a quote you had in the book. I can't remember what page. But it says, uh, the economic system we currently have in place is quite literally toxic to humanity because late-stage capitalism is rife with the love of money uh, and that capitalistic arvis plunges people into ruin and destruction. Um, can you, like... First, unpack that a little bit. I know there's a lot to unpack in that statement, but unpack that a little bit, then I have a follow-up, too. Sure. I, I think it was pretty clear that I'm not pro-capitalism from that quote, right? And if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, that's where the verse, the love of money is the root of all evil, comes in. And as a student of history and a student of theology, I can't look at laissez-faire capitalism as anything but the love of money because what we have now is wealth being hyper-concentrated in fewer and fewer hands Mm -hmm. while there is enormous human suffering uh, globally. And I look at this beyond like the U.S. economy, right? We all have to eat and live indoors and I don't want to just pull the rug right out and then cause some kind of systemic collapse that that gives nobody a a safety net. But I do believe that we have to look at these things again through this theological lens because avarice is a particularly nasty kind of greed. And we see that in our system of government in which we have political leaders going around literally ensuring that wages in other countries are suppressed so that Americans can buy things cheaper at their local big box retailer. Or we have wars that are being fought, and some of them we don't really know that much about, right? The one between Russia and Ukraine, everybody's talking about that one right now because it's huge and it has so much potential to become much worse. But we have conflicts, violent military conflicts in places around the world to snatch up resources in order to keep Americans or Western Europe or Australia in this hyper-consumptive form of capitalism in which they're telling us constantly, hey, you need this, that, or the other thing to be happy. You need to keep buying the latest computer, tablet, phone all the time. Uh, If you buy this kind of car, you're going to have this kind of feeling. You'll notice that a lot of times they're selling feelings. They're not selling products. Mm -hmm. They're selling feelings. 
and then they have a product at the end of the feeling, right? <laughs> so <clears throat> I look at that through the lens of theology and also through the lens of permaculture, which has an ethical underpinning. And for those that don't know, permaculture is a system of ecological and social design in which designers like myself attempt to work with nature to create something that uh, permaculturist Tommy Hemingway called cultivated ecosystems. So it's an ecosystem that provides, hopefully, if it's done well, food, fuel, and fiber for human beings while also providing habitat and food for other species because God called creation good. And I think that that means we're here to steward it. And one of the ethics of permaculture is often expressed as to redistribute the surplus, which for a lot of capitalists sounds like socialism, mm -hmm. right? So I, I say it a little different. I say neighbor, uh, creation care, neighbor care, and future care. Well, we can't have care for the future if a very small number of people have hoarded their wealth. Mm -hmm. And there are tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people living on less than $2 a day. So I can't even go to my local coffee shop and get a cup of tea for $2. Yeah. But we got people out there that are working all day doing things that I certainly, well, I can't anymore because I'm 51 and my back hurts, but you know, I wouldn't want to do particularly not for $2 a day. So that's where the avarice comes in and, and the greed. And the, the funny thing about that first, that first Timothy chapter six passage is right above where it says for the love of money is the root of all evil. The, whoever the writer of that particular epistle is, is tells the reader, look, you should be content with food and clothing, mm -hmm. not a second house in Malibu. Mm -hmm. Definitely not a yacht to tow your other yacht or a giant phallic rocket that you're going to almost space in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like the really rich people are, you know, having dick measuring contest with these rockets that don't actually go to space. Like they don't have better things to spend their money on. Right. So I, that, that kind of, thought process just doesn't make sense to me mm. because people are being harmed by that. Yeah. By and, that, and, by and that late stage capitalism. And, and with that, with that late stage capitalism, how do you see like how churches have kind of gone along with this and acquiesced to this kind of a movement as well? Well, I know that, you know, there are the churches like Joel Osteen's, He's a, he's low hanging fruit when it comes to this kind of thing, or, you know, some of the other televangelists or mega church pastors with their Ferraris and their giant houses and, and all of that. But what we, what I see a lot of times is that churches, particularly more conservative churches have membership who believes that capitalism is basically biblical. Mm. Well, that's anachronistic because capitalism is a very modern economic system. Just exchanging money is not capitalism. People exchanged money in the ancient Near East when Jesus was alive, mm -hmm. but that wasn't capitalism. It was just whatever their economy was. I just saw yesterday that there's a pastor who is teaching people, I think here locally, which horrifies me, that the government, according to him, should biblically not do anything to help poor people. Because, wow. the, because there's some passage that talks about, and I can't remember where it was, maybe it was one of the pastorals, about people who are lazy, uh, you know, don't, shouldn't be taken care of or whatever. Mm-hmm. So this brings, so he clearly has an idea of deserving versus undeserving poor. Mm -hmm. But what happens with that model is that anybody who's poor is lumped into this undeserving, you're lazy thing. Yeah. 
And there's definitely an undercurrent of racism with that. Yeah. That, 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 that stems back to at least Ronald Reagan's welfare queen ad from the 1980s. And guess what color that person was? Mm -hmm. They didn't look like me, mm -hmm. right? So that, that racism undergirds capitalism is mm -hmm. something that is definitely, uh, I believe, historically true. Mm -hmm. There's a fantastic book by a historian from Cornell University, Edward uh, Baptist, called The Half Has Never Been Told Slavery in the Making of American Capitalism, mm -hmm. in which he lays out a very convincing argument that I completely agree with, that without the institution of white supremacist chattel slavery, American capitalism doesn't take off the way, and we don't become the economic superpower that, that we are. Mm -hmm. So a lot of conservative Christians seem to have this view that capitalism is good, that free enterprise, as they so call it, is the way forward. Mm -hmm which is kind of bonkers yeah. because Jesus had a lot to say about the hoarding of wealth mm -hmm. and none of it was good for the people that hoarded the wealth. And that's what we see with capitalism is wealth hoarding all over the place. So I I don't know if I've answered your question. No, yet. I think I think you have. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I think that that's. I mean, but this is part of this larger discussion. I think that you're trying to dig into is that th that these are these are questions. I feel like we have to wrestle with. These are questions that we have to. That they're not like. There's not always easy answers to these things. But just because there's not e easy answers does not mean that we should stop the wrestling and trying to figure out better ways forward. Um, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. and and. One of the things that permaculture teaches is to make the least change for the greatest effect. Mm. So you don't bring in a bulldozer if you just need to do a little bit of landscaping. Mm -hmm. That would be overkill. Right now, one of the things, the least changes that we could make is, is regulating capitalist enterprises so that they can't continue to foul the water or the air or the land. Mm -hmm. Nor could they continue to use exploitative labor practices, whether here in the United States or in Haiti, where uh, when Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State, mm -hmm. the United States Department of State forced, coerced the Haitian government in conjunction with Haitian capitalists to keep wages at less than 60 cents an hour, I think it was. Mm. This is, yeah. this is absolutely evil. Mm -hmm. These are people living very much on the edge because of their uh, of severe poverty. And that is, that's just one tiny example. This goes on all over the place. So if we bring regulation, which again, the conservative pro-capitalist people don't want to hear, but I guarantee you the coal companies in West Virginia and Kentucky and, and Pennsylvania wouldn't have made the profits that they would have, that they made had there been even minimal environmental regulations put in place yeah right or the uh, we have a lot of fracking mm -hmm. in pennsylvania and we know all of the dangerous issues that come with fracking and yet there are still frack pads all over the northern part of the state and they're spraying uh, chemicals that are used in the fracking process, they spray them on the roads in the wintertime up here to melt the snow and the ice. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, gosh, that's yeah. Cool. Yeah. So God. where does where does that go? Yeah. Right into the watershed. Mm -hmm. But I guarantee you there's some company somewhere that's making money 
selling those chemicals to probably municipalities so that they can keep the functioning of capitalism going when the weather says everything should freaking stop. <laughs> you know, so we've got 12 inches of snow, but hey, we got to keep the, you know, we got to keep them all open. Yeah, and we or, or we got to keep the, somehow making people money in that way. Yeah, you're right about that. Florida's done something similar. I think they were using some uh their radioactive materials to help uh uh pave roads. It was uh, I think it was in um they oh, found wow. it had something to do with I think it uh what was it through? It had something to do with animal like waste and compost, and they were finding new ways to be able to use some of this materials and stuff like that too. And again, goes in the roads. We don't care about the workers putting it down. We don't care about it leaching into the soil. We don't care. Well, I think the answer is we don't care as long we as there's don't profits. Care. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. When you put profits over people, mm -hmm. that's antichrist. Yeah. And by I don't mean the antichrist. I mean antichrist big umbrella. Yeah, absolutely. This is completely antithetical to what Jesus taught. So I, that that for me means capitalism is a non-starter, and we have to start doing things very, very differently. Absolutely. No, but that's I, not that's not that's not a wall that's going to just come down on its own. No, you're right. And it's something that happens. It, it has to do with a how we vote, how we. Uh, how we spend our money, uh, how the decisions that we make and the choices that we make moving forward. Because uh, I think sometimes we can get lost in it and assume that it's like, oh, the political officials, it's their problem. They'll fix this or they'll make it worse. As opposed to the fact that, yeah, we, we have daily choices that we do that contribute to all of these things too. Right. And, and, and that brings up a really good point because there's only so much that I can do mm -hmm. on on an individual level, especially when you run into a very hard wall uh, that is built by government and corporate malfeasance. So it's the, the, the limits of what I can do here in my home are grow my own food. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I can't grow all of my own food. I, I live on a in the city, right? I have like a quarter, less than a quarter of an acre, but I can grow some food here. Mm -hmm. I can pour water from my sink, from my dishpan into a five gallon bucket because I don't have enough money to put in a whole gray water system. So I have to improvise. And then I take probably five to 10 gallons of water a week and recycle it through my lawn, mm -hmm. lawn and garden area that doesn't go into the sewage. It's not a lot, but it's better than nothing, mm -hmm. especially in a drought because Pennsylvania is in a drought. But that, that limit is easy to reach. So we need bottom up and we need top down and we can't get the top down without the bottom up because if people aren't politically engaged and believe me, it's super easy to be cynical in the United States of America about political engagement thing about that is there are literal fascists who are super duper engaged right now and they're engaged at the school board level they're engaged at the uh, county commissioner level i watched a recent video of a county commissioner meeting where a pastor stood up and started lecturing the county commissioners basically about not making Lancaster County a theocratic county. Mm -hmm. And I'm just sitting there horrified by this because I remember from high school, they wrote this really cool thing. What was it? Oh, it's called the First Amendment. <laughs> and that says that the government doesn't get to say what religion you follow. It also means that it says that you can't privilege one religion over the other. Mm -hmm. And I recently read uh, a quote from a historian named Alan Taylor. And he said during the Continental, not the Continental Congress, but the, um, the Constitutional Convention, mm -hmm. while all the dead white dudes were in there creating their dead white dude paradise uh, with the Constitution, 
they were so bent on making sure that it was a secular document, they wouldn't even let chaplains in the room. Mm. But now we have Christo-fascist, Christian nationalist, etc., telling our county commissioners, one of whom is a Christian nationalist, that we need to be doing it this very white evangelical fundamentalist way. So I get cynical. I, I really do. I have a hard time not being cynical because PTSD, I think, kind of lends itself to making people somewhat cynical. And I do uh, have that. But we, I, I, and I don't know the answer. I'm not, I'm not by, or, by nature an organizer. There are people who are really gifted at that. And I'm really lucky to live in a county where there are some outstanding political organizers. And the religious right is, has been fantastic at that mm -hmm. ever since the rise of the moral majority. So we got to, those of us who don't see the world through that particular lens, which there's a lot of evil in that lens, mm -hmm. need to be just as engaged and just as, as organized as they are. And, and hopefully change the system enough in systems thinking the idea is that a system will continue to perpetuate itself and continue to do its thing. So if you've got a refrigerator, that's a closed system. And until you poke a hole into the compressor, it's going to do its refrigeration thing. But if you radically, if you alter the system enough, that will change the system. Mm. So if you get enough people who to actually put things into practice that we say that we have in this country. We say that we have one person, one vote. We really don't because of the electoral college, but at the local level and the state level we do, mm -hmm. then perhaps we can start making those least change for greatest effects moments happen and start undermining laissez-faire capitalism in a way that, cr that creates a more equal playing field. And I want to reiterate that I don't just mean for people in the United States. Yeah. Because we live in a globalized world now. Everything was hyper-local in Jesus's day. Mm -hmm. Well, the Bible is a collection of living text. And in our cultural moment, we live in a globalized world so everybody from Albania to Zimbabwe mm. is my neighbor mm -hmm. in some form or fashion. And we live on a closed system, a biosphere that is a closed system. So if we're putting stuff in the water here, somewhere along the line, that water might fall as acid rain somewhere else or, you know, toxic sludge into the Chesapeake Bay where I, you know, just down the river from where I live, that, mm. that kind of thing. So I think it, I think it's really important to have a local focus and a big picture focus mm. as well. No, I like that because I think that we can become so easily obsessed with one or the other. Um, yes. and, and, and when we do that, I think it disconnects us from the whole system as well. So I think that you're right. That balanced approach is big. Now you're talking about um, you talk about things like climate change and and this unsustainability that we're in now. And in your book, there's a chapter about finding hope in chaos. Uh, yes. Where, where you had a student asked you about how to find hope amidst the, the scary reality that we face as humans. And so how 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 do you find hope in in light of like potential collapse of civilization, mass extinction, all these other crazy stuff that, that's happening to us right now. How, how do you find hope in all of the chaos? Well, that's a fantastic question. It takes mindfulness mm. because despair will get me nowhere. Mm -hmm. And there's a climate scientist that I follow on uh, X, I guess, 
not Twitter anymore. It's X. His name is Dr. Michael Mann. He says he, he doesn't give credence to doomers or denialists mm. because he says we do have a window. Mm-hmm. Now it's not, it's not open very large, but we do have a window. Mm. So there's, there's hope in that. I don't think that, I don't think that most human beings want to see the, the biosphere collapse. Mm-hmm. I think that there are some who lack empathy and who don't give two shits because I got mine. Mm-hmm. But in general, I think humanity would like things to keep going. Kind of like in, in Good Omens, when, when, the, when the devil, the angel and the demon like try to stop Armageddon. Because they're like, hey, there's some good stuff happening here. Yeah. So some of the things that give me hope are found in the way nature works. Mm. Nature regenerates and restores itself. People who are in the field of permaculture, regenerative agriculture, ecology, conservation, biology, etc., have knowledge of different ways to, to speed up some of those processes by which regeneration or remediation of pollution can take place. That gives me hope because if you design a system well, you can be creating more than you're taking out. Whereas now our agricultural system is, is like mining, according to a permaculturist named Jeff Lawton, mm-hmm. who's, who's recognized around the world for his permaculture-related work. The other, another thing that gives me hope is, is human resilience. I'll give myself as a, as a brief example. I have complex PTSD and, uh, and simple PTSD, which is kind of a misnomer, but I won the PTSD lottery uh, by having a pretty shit childhood. And then when I was in the Marine Corps, I was severely injured in an accident. And when, when the psychologist who diagnosed me first diagnosed me, he looked at me with very kind, compassionate eyes and said, I am amazed that you are not face down in a gutter with a rusty needle sticking out of your arm. And at that moment in time, I, I didn't understand what he had to say, why mm-hmm. he was saying that because my life was just my life and my life was normal. Right. But he, he went on to tell me that what I had gone through was not normal. It was traumatizing. So I realized, okay, so he said, I don't know what it is that gives you this resiliency, but you have tremendous resiliency. And I've sent, since that time, I've been in therapy for many years and I've added many more tools to my sort of mental health toolkit. Mm-hmm. But looking beyond me, there's a fantastic uh, documentary series by the BBC called Human Planet. It's, it's pretty old now, but it goes around to different bio regions, biological and ecosystems where human beings have adapted to live and what in some pretty startling ways. And in one of the episodes, they go to this community that's basically a floating community somewhere out in the Pacific. And they show this gentleman who's going to go hunting for fish on the reefs around his floating community. He puts himself into some kind of trance and they film the whole thing. He's just kind of staring at the water. So I don't know exactly what his process is, but he jumps into the water and he's under the water without any breathing apparatus. He's got a pair of very simple swim goggles on the kind that always fill up with water when I'm trying to swim laps at the Y. And he spends two and a half minutes underwater bouncing around the reef until he spears a fish. And then he pops up and he takes it back to his home and to feed his family. And he said, oh, yeah, I could be down there for like five minutes. Mm. That's pretty freaking incredible. Yeah. They show other they show some people in New Guinea, I think it was in a in a forested environment. And, you know, in a tropical forest, there's going to be tropical bugs. So what do they do to be able to sleep? They they build 
uh, houses way up in the canopy of mm. these trees. And then the first thing to do is light a fire up there, which I thought was kind of strange. But, you know, you're in a tree on a wooden platform, but you're going to build a fire. But it seems to work for them. And and they they have learned how to still remain in their environment, but achieve a level of comfort that they couldn't by staying closer to the ground where the where the mosquitoes and other you know nighttime critters are so that that gives me hope mm-hmm. I, I think it's called gen z that's that's the younger generation right now uh they give me hope one of the best sources of news in america right now is teen vogue mm. i mean really that's you know 25 years ago that's probably not the case but now you've got hard hitting journalism in a magazine that is directed to teens and there's a lot of gen z and younger millennials that are very engaged in the political process and they're very engaged in the economic process in, in terms of trying to do things differently to bring about positive and meaningful change so that people can live their lives in a more rewarding way and not this soul-crushing, late capitalistic hellscape kind of way that, that so many people are having to deal with right now. So all of those things give me hope. And I have to... Like I said, I have to be mindful about it because if you start paying attention to the news and seeing the various climate-related calamities Mm -hmm. that are happening, and believe me, America's not going to be spared this. We haven't been already. Crazy wildfires in California. I did a podcast recently with uh, the hostess in Louisiana, they were having wildfires in Louisiana. And he goes, and it's a swamp. I saw that too. I was like, yes, swamps are on fire. Oh yeah. That makes total sense. That makes, (laughs) that's crazy. Yeah. So we have to have to be careful about how much of that kind of stuff Mm. that we take in so that despair doesn't set in. Mm. And I think that we have to be a lot more intentional about building community connections. This is very hard for people with PTSD mm-hmm. because we tend to isolate uh, a lot more than most people. I'm an extrovert, but I isolate a lot because of mental health and it's a strange dichotomy. But if you look at the early church and not I, I, all the way back to post-resurrection, and I'm not, I'm talking, or I'll just say post-resurrection. I'm not saying whether or not that's a historical fact or not. I'm just saying in the biblical text, post-resurrection, mm-hmm. the early church was very communally minded. Mm-hmm. And I've been reading a fascinating book lately by uh, historian of Christianity, Diana Butler Bass, mm-hmm. A People's History of Christianity. And she talks about in that book how much community meant in the early church, particularly around Rome, where or, or in the Roman Empire, where the church alleviated the suffering of so many people because they rolled up their sleeves and they built community. And because of their very strong faith, they had this sort of, eh, if I die, I die kind of attitude, right? Because they had a very strong belief that they would be reunited with Jesus if they died and go to their eternal reward. So it wasn't quite so scary for mm-hmm. them because of, because of that belief. But they had a very strong community ethic. When you have multiple connections and then you make, and then they start to branch out, then you have a more resilient system. It's just like an ecosystem. Human Mm -hmm. beings are part of an ecosystem. Whether you're in Manhattan or you're on a kibbutz, 
in the middle of nowhere. You're in, you're in an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And the more dynamic an ecosystem is, the more resilient it is. So the more dynamic our relationships are, then the more resilient we can be in the face of some of the challenges that we're going to be facing as a result of human stupidity mm -hmm. uh, uh, of continuing to burn fossil fuels. And I will say that both sides of the aisle in American politics get this wrong a lot. President Biden, as much good as he's done, is still allowing new offshore drilling yep. and new uh, potential leases for drilling on public lands out west. This is absolutely fucking stupid and that's 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 a theological term fucking stupid because you're putting human lives at risk and creation at risk yeah to to perpetuate the system that we know is is causing so much damage and that that's bonkers we should know better we should definitely know better by now well, this gives us, at least there out there, dear listeners, gives you a, a little bit of a synopsis of a lot of the different varying topics I think that we have in the book. Um, I also note here, um, Dylan, that this is volume one. Yes. What, uh, what kind of topics are we covering in volume two when it comes out? Okay, so volume two is going to have a series of essays called Dear White People. <laughs> uh, because I'm super duper white. Uh, I got the DNA test to prove it. And I, I, I write about anti-racism, systemic racism, uh, what critical race theory actually is, is, is one of the dear white people. Mm. I also have a, an essay. I think it's in there. Yeah. Uh, an, a permaculture denunciation of anti LGBTQI bigotry. Mm that looks at the, looks at that issue through the lens of permaculture mm. and, and what the natural world is. So there's, and there, there's a section of, I think three or four permaculture related, uh, essays. So sort of eco theology, uh, essays in there and more, more social justice related, uh, kind of things. So it, it kind of continues the, the uh the thrust of, of volume one and it should be out in about six months six months okay okay yeah. so okay it's already written it's already written it's, it's with the publisher and everything so yeah oh i look forward to seeing that as well too um so you agreed to this ahead of time whether you like this or not but we're gonna hit towards <laughs> okay. the end of this we're gonna have this is the uh, game uh that i've called all right public theologian what say you such okay. a good such a good title so this is the off the cuff uh, public theologian, your responses to uh, stuff that we, you know, we may be seeing here uh, in the news. So, uh, what say you uh, about the war against Christianity in America right now? <laughs> That's what I say. Awesome. <laughs> uh, beca because there isn't one. Yeah. Right? So, if anybody, if Christians in America think that they're being persecuted because they can't persecute other people i got news for them that's not what persecution looks like absolutely so okay. that's what i would say <laughs> okay all right so uh public theologian what say you Ma i hear masks are coming back mask mandates oh my goodness i might have to be have a minor inconvenience to love my neighbor oh dear me whatever shall i do oh Love it. I love it. I know it always gets me mad when I see people starting to like <laughs> amp up on this. I'm like, just, it's a, it's a kindness and it's yeah. Okay. It, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, this is another one. Um, it's not quite in that same vein, but, uh, Dylan has Ted Cruz ruined the family name for you. <laughs> is it, did he, is that ruined everything? Well, well, um, <laughs> I, I married into that name. 
I was born with the last name neighbor and okay. I married a woman with Puerto Rican ancestry and took her name because fuck the patriarchy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Ted Cruz, uh, that's a guy who really should meet Jesus sometime. Mm-hmm. That's all I got to say about Ted Cruz. <laughs> or, yeah. or read the book. Read the book. Ted. Or read the book. Yeah. Read the book, Ted. Yeah. It's come on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you for being a good sport with this. Uh, oh, absolutely. The, yes. So the book is Theological Musings by Dylan Neighbor Cruz. Now, Dylan, uh, it's available on Amazon. If people want to find you online, as people do, to know more about you and follow your work, how would they do that? Okay. So if you put my name in, put it all, all three names in, and just do a search, I'll pop up on social media. Uh, I have a Facebook page, an author page there, and a personal page. I have a blog, uh, tattoodtheologian.com. There is a dash between tattooed and theologian. There's also another tattooed theologian out there, a Catholic gentleman who does not have a dash between them. So oh. mine is, I ha- you'll know it's mine because it says Chorus at the top uh, in big, big letters and uh, Greek. Uh, and... Yeah, you can look me up on Amazon, and both of my books will come up. Awesome. Now, now, uh, who has the better tattoos between you or the uh, Catholic version of the tattoo feet? I haven't seen his, okay. so I can't say. Okay, but so, I, mine are mine are pretty rad, though. So I, <laughs> I yeah, I'll say round one goes to you because uh, we have no evidence of round two. So sorry, Catholic. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. That's a big womp womp for you. But so, Dylan, thank you so much uh, for being on the show today. This is, it's a great book. I feel like it's a super timely book uh, for people to be reading and processing these kind of things. And I love the fact that you are bringing uh, theology into the public sphere, where I think it needs to be um, in this day and age. Thank you. Yeah, I do too, clearly. <laughs> Much thanks to Dylan Neighbor Cruz, and you guys should check out his book, Theological Musings, Collected Essays of a Tattooed Theologians, Volume 1, which means if you miss the first one, the second one's coming, so get it before the second one happens. Check it out on Amazon. But boys and girls, thank you so much for being with me this hour hour plus who knows how long we've gone today but before i send you off just a reminder to share the show subscribe and give snarky faith a review over on apple Podcasts because it helps get the word out to new listeners and i want to thank you for being a part of this show week after week i appreciate all of you now as i release you out into this wild wide world send you out the holiest amount grace and peace, and snark. And in this crazy day and age, peace be with you. I'm out of here. This Choircast podcast is brought to you by Reframing Our Stories. Conversations with your loved ones about relationships, puberty, and the body can sometimes be awkward. At Reframing Our Stories, we say, you are worth the awkward and so is your family. We've developed three age-based sets of conversation cards with questions and prompts that can help get these conversations going. Use them at dinner, before bedtime, or in the car. Learn more through our store at www.reframingourstories.com. That's www.reframingourstories.com.